Welcome to The Time of Our Life, a special series from Valley Public Radio. I'm David Aus. In this series, award-winning journalist and author Mark Arax offers a special perspective on our times, viewed through the lens of writer William Soroyan. This week, we're joined by Fresno writer and educator Tanya Nichols. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you, David, for having us. Mark, why don't you kick things off? I'm really excited. We're having Tanya Nichols here to read The Pomegranate Trees, which is one of my favorite Soroyan stories. Tanya is the author of three works of fiction, The Barber's Wife, The Circle Game, and Stinger, a novel that she co-wrote with Bill McEwen. Tanya got her MFA in fiction writing from Fresno State University, and that's where she now teaches writing and literature courses. This is about Soroyan, so tell us how you got introduced to Soroyan and what he kind of has meant to you as a, as a writer growing up in Fresno and all across the place. When uh, I was a child, my family moved quite a bit. Uh, I went to 10 different schools uh, by the time I was a senior in high school. But I was born in Fresno, and we seemed to kind of bounce around leaving Fresno and then ending up back in Fresno. So I really thought of Fresno as my home. And there was a time, probably seventh or eighth grade, and to be honest, I don't remember what school or which city I was living in, uh, but the teacher mentioned William Soroyan in English class. And my heart just jumped because I knew Soroyan was from Fresno and I was from Fresno. And I just felt special because to me, William Soroyan was home. And I always thought of Fresno as home. So when we would end up moving back here, I felt safe. So I don't know. He just represented this really comfortable place. And that was Fresno. When you came back to Fresno, did you ever have a Soroyan sighting where he was, you know, furiously pedaling his bicycle, (laughs) you know, down uh, Shaw Avenue in the 70s or 80s or no? I like to think I did, but I'm not certain. I I think... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like to think I saw him uh, riding his bike on Van Ness, and this would have been late 70s, early 80s, and I like to think I saw him, and that would have been when I was visiting my brother, and I thought, I think that's William Soroyan, but I didn't know for sure. It's a sight you would not mistake, but, but then again, you're a fiction writer, so you might have invented this. Who knows? I, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I have no doubt of that. Tell us about why you chose the pomegranate trees. I recently had a conversation with the poet Naomi Shihab Nye. She lives in San Antonio, Texas. She was supposed to be our keynote speaker for this year's Young Writers Conference at Fresno State, and we had to cancel and go virtual. So we had a Zoom session, and uh, she told me the story that she always felt like she knew Fresno before she ever got here because she had read the works of William Soroyan. And she told me the story that when she was a child, she read the story, The Pomegranate Trees, and it's her favorite story. And it is the only story she ever read to her father out loud that made him laugh hysterically. So she felt very uh, fond of this story because it really made her father laugh wholeheartedly. And so When you called and said that you were putting this program together, I immediately said, and and you'll recall, I want to read The Pomegranate Trees. And it was because I had just had this conversation with Naomi Shihab Nye. And she reminded me what a terrific story it is. 
Well, that tees it right up. So love to hear it. Pomegranate Trees by William Soroyan My uncle Melick was just about the worst farmer that ever lived. He was too imaginative for his own good. What he wanted was beauty. He wanted to plant it and see it grow. I myself planted more than a hundred pomegranate trees. I drove a John Deere tractor, too, and so did my uncle. It was all art, not agriculture. My uncle just liked the idea of planting trees and watching them grow. Only they wouldn't grow. It was on account of the soil. The soil was desert soil. It was dry. My uncle waved at the 640 acres of desert he had bought and said in the most poetic Armenian anybody ever heard, Here in this awful desolation, a garden shall flower. Fountains of cold water shall bubble out of the earth and all the things of beauty shall come into being. Yes, sir, I said. I was the first and only member of the family to see the land. He knew I would understand the impulse that was driving him to ruin. I did. I knew as well as he that what he had bought was worthless desert land. It was away over to hell and gone at the foot of the Sierra Nevada mountains. It was full of every kind of desert plant that ever sprang out of dry, hot earth. It was overrun with prairie dogs, squirrels, horned toads, snakes, and a variety of smaller forms of life. The space over this land knew only the presence of hawks, eagles, and buzzards. It was a region of silence, loneliness, emptiness, truth, and dignity. It was nature at its proudest, driest, and loveliest. My uncle and I got out of the Ford Roadster and began to walk over the dry earth. This land is my land, he said. He walked slowly, kicking into the dry soil. A horned toad scrambled over the earth at my uncle's feet. My uncle clutched my shoulder and came to a halt. What is that animal? That little tiny lizard? Yes. What is it? I don't know for sure. But we call them horny toads. The horned toad came to a halt about three feet away and turned its head. My uncle looked down at the small animal. Is it poison, he said, to eat or if it bites you? Either way. I don't think it's good to eat. I think it's harmless. I've caught many of them. They grow sad in captivity, but never bite. Shall I catch this one? Please do. I sneaked up on the horned toad, then sprang on it while my uncle looked on. Careful, he said. Are you sure it isn't poison? I've caught many of them. I took the horned toad to my uncle. He tried not to seem afraid. A lovely little thing, isn't it? His voice was unsteady. Would you like to hold it? No, you hold it. I have never before been so close to such a thing as this. I see it has eyes. I suppose it can see us? It's looking up at you right now. My uncle looked the horned toad straight in the eye. The horned toad looked my uncle straight in the eye. 
For fully half a minute, they looked one another straight in the eye, and then the horned toad turned its head aside and looked down at the ground. My uncle sighed with relief. A thousand of them, he said, could kill a man, I suppose. They never travel in great numbers. You hardly ever see more than one at a time. A big one could probably bite a man to death. They don't grow big. This is as big as they get. They seem to have an awful eye for such small creatures. Are you sure they don't mind being picked up? They forget all about it the minute you put them down. Do you really think so? I don't think they have very good memories. My uncle straightened up, breathing deeply. Put the little creature down, he said. Let us be kind to the innocent inventions of Almighty God. If it is not poison and grows no larger than a mouse and does not travel in great numbers and has no memory to speak of, let the timid little thing return to the earth. Let us love these small things which live on the earth with us. Yes, sir. I placed the horned toad on the ground. Gently now. Let no harm come to this strange dweller on my land. The horned toad scrambled away. These little things have been living on soil of this kind for centuries, I said. Centuries, my uncle said. Are you sure? No, I'm not, but I imagine they have. They're still here at any rate. My uncle looked around at his land, at the cactus and brush growing out of it, at the sky overhead. What have they been eating all this time, he said. Insects, I guess. What kind of insects? Little bugs. We continued to walk over the dry land. When we came to some holes in the earth, my uncle stood over them and said, Who lives down there? Prairie dogs. What are they? Well, they're something like rats. They belong to the rodent family. What are all these things doing on my land? They don't know it's your land. They're living here the same as ever. I don't suppose that horny toad ever looked a man in the eye before. I don't think so. Do you think I scared it or anything? I don't know for sure. If I did, I didn't mean to. I'm going to build a house here someday. I didn't know that. I'm going to build a magnificent house. It's pretty far away. It's only an hour from town. If you go 50 miles an hour... It's not 50 miles to town. It's 37. Well, you've got to take a little time out for rough roads. I'll build me the finest house in the world. What else lives on this land? Well, there are three or four kinds of snakes. Poison or non-poison? Mostly non. The rattlesnake is poison, though. Do you mean to tell me there are rattlesnakes on this land? This is the kind of land rattlesnakes usually live on. How many? Per acre or on the whole 640 acres? Per acre. Well, I'd say there are about three per acre, conservatively. Three per acre? Conservatively? Maybe only two. How many is that to the whole place? Well, let's see. Two per acre, 640 acres, about 1,500 of them. 
Fifteen hundred rattlesnakes? An acre's pretty big. Two rattlesnakes per acre isn't many. You don't often see them. What else have we got around here that's poison? I don't know of anything else. All the other things are harmless. The rattlesnakes are harmless, too, unless you step on them. All right, my uncle said. You walk ahead and watch where you're going. If you see a rattlesnake, don't step on it. I don't want you to die at the age of 11. Yes, sir. I'll watch carefully. We turned around and walked back to the ford. I didn't see any rattlesnakes on the way. We got into the car, and my uncle lighted a cigarette. I'm going to make a garden in this awful desolation. Yes, sir. I know what my problems are, and I know how to solve them. How? Do you mean the horny toads or the rattlesnakes? I mean the problems. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is hire some Mexicans and put them to work. Doing what? Clearing the land. Then I'm going to have them dig for water. Dig where? Straight down. After we get water, I'm going to have them plow the land, and then I'm going to plant. Wheat? Wheat, my uncle shouted. What do I want with wheat? Bread is five cents a loaf. I'm going to plant pomegranate trees. How much are pomegranates? Who knows? They're practically unknown in this country. Ten? Fifteen? Maybe twenty cents each? Is that all you're going to plant? I have in mind planting several other kinds of trees. Peach? About ten acres. How about apricots? By all means, the apricot is a lovely fruit, lovely in shape with a glorious flavor and a most delightful pit. I shall plant about twenty acres of apricot trees. I hope the Mexicans don't have any trouble finding water. Is there water under this land? Of course, my uncle said. The important thing is to get started. I shall instruct the men to watch out for rattlesnakes, pomegranates, peaches, apricots. What else? Figs? Thirty acres of figs. How about mulberries? The mulberry tree is a very nice-looking tree, my uncle said. A tree I know well from the old country. How many acres would you suggest? About ten? All right. What else? Olive trees are nice. Yes, they are. About ten acres of olive trees. Anything else? Well, I don't suppose apple trees would grow on this kind of land. No, but I don't like apples anyway. He started the car, and we drove off the dry land, on to the dry road. The car bounced about slowly until we reached the road, and then we began to travel at a higher rate of speed. One thing, my uncle said, when we get home, I would rather you didn't mention this farm to the folks. Yes, sir. Farm? I thought, what farm? I want to surprise them. You know how your grandmother is. I'll go ahead with my plans, and when everything is in order, I'll take the whole family out to the farm and surprise them. Yes, sir. Not a word to a living soul. Yes, sir. Well, the Mexicans went to work and cleared the land. They cleared about ten acres of it in about two months. There were seven of them. 
They worked with shovels and hoes. They didn't understand anything about anything. It all seemed very strange, but they never complained. They were being paid, and that was the thing that counted. They were two brothers and their sons. One day, the older brother, Diego, very politely asked my uncle what it was they were supposed to be doing. Senor, he said, please forgive me. Why are we cutting down the cactus? I'm going to farm this land, my uncle said. The other Mexican asked Diego what my uncle had said, and Diego told them. They didn't believe it was worth the trouble to tell my uncle he couldn't do it. They just went on cutting down the cactus. The cactus, however, stayed down only for a short while. The land which had been first cleared was soon rich again with fresh cactus and brush. My uncle made this observation with considerable amazement. Maybe it takes deep plowing to get rid of cactus, I said. Maybe you've got to plow it out. My uncle talked the matter over with Ryan, who had a farm implement business. Ryan told him not to fool with horses. The modern thing to do was to turn a good tractor loose on the land and do a year's work in a day. So my uncle bought a John Deere tractor. It was beautiful. A mechanic from Ryan's taught Diego how to operate the tractor. And the next day, when my uncle and I reached the land, we could see the tractor away out in the desolation, and we could hear it booming in the grand silence of the desert. It sounded crazy. It was crazy. My uncle thought it was wonderful. Progress, he said. There's the modern age for you. Ten thousand years ago, it would have taken a hundred men a week to do what the tractor has already done today. Ten thousand years ago? You mean yesterday. Anyway, there's nothing like these modern conveniences. The tractor isn't a convenience. What is it then, my uncle said. Doesn't the driver sit? He couldn't very well stand. Any time they let you sit, it's a convenience. Can you whistle? Yes, sir. What kind of song would you like to hear? I don't want to hear any song. Whistle at the Mexican on the tractor. What for? Never mind what for. Just whistle. I want him to know we are here and that we are pleased with his work. He's probably plowed twenty acres. Yes, sir. I put the second and third fingers of each hand into my mouth and blew with all my might. It was good and loud. Nevertheless, it didn't seem as if Diego had heard me. He was pretty far away. We were walking toward him anyway, so I couldn't figure out why my uncle wanted me to whistle at him. Once again, he said. I whistled once again, but again Diego didn't hear. Louder, please. This next time, I gave it all I had, and my uncle put his hands over his ears. My face got red, but this time, the Mexican on the tractor heard the whistle. He slowed the tractor down, turned it around, and began plowing straight across the field toward us. Do you want him to do that? It doesn't matter. In less than a minute and a half, the tractor and the Mexican arrived. The Mexican was delighted. He wiped dirt and perspiration off his face and got down from the tractor. Senor, he said, this is wonderful. I'm glad you like it, my uncle said. Would you like a ride? My uncle was sure he didn't. He looked at me. Go ahead, he said. Hop on. Have a little ride. 
Diego got on the tractor and helped me on. He sat on the metal seat, and I stood behind him, holding him. The tractor began to shake, then jumped, and then began to go. The Mexican drove around in a big circle and brought the tractor back to my uncle. I jumped off. All right, my uncle said to the Mexican. Go back to your work. Diego drove the tractor back to where he was plowing. My uncle didn't get water out of the land until many months later. He had wells dug all over the place, but no water came out of them. He had motor pumps installed, but even then, no water came out. A water specialist named Roy came out from Texas with his two younger brothers, and they began to investigate the land. At last, they told my uncle they'd get water for him. It took them three months, but the water was muddy and there wasn't much of it. The specialist told my uncle matters would improve with time and went back to Texas. Now half the land was cleared and plowed and there was water, so the time had come to plant. We planted pomegranate trees. They were of the finest quality and very expensive. Altogether, we planted about 700 of them, and I myself planted a 100, while my uncle planted eight or nine. We had a 20-acre orchard of pomegranate trees away over in the middle of the dry desert, and my uncle was crazy about it. The only trouble was his money was running out. Instead of going ahead and trying to make a garden of the whole 640 acres, he decided to devote his time and energy and money to the pomegranate trees alone. Only for the time being, he said, until we begin to sell the pomegranates and get our money back. Yes, sir. I didn't know for sure, but it seemed to me we wouldn't be getting any pomegranates to speak of from the little trees for two or three years at least. But I didn't say anything. My uncle got rid of the Mexican workers, and he and I took over the farm. We had the tractor and a lot of land, so every now and then we drove out to the land and drove the tractor around plowing up cactus and turning over the soil between the pomegranate trees. The water situation didn't improve with time. Every once in a while, there would be a sudden generous spurt of water containing only a few pebbles, and my uncle would be greatly pleased. But the next day, the water would be muddy again, and there would be only a little trickle. The trees took root and held fast, but they just weren't getting enough water. There were blossoms after the second year. This was a great triumph for my uncle, but nothing much ever came of the blossoms. They were beautiful, but that was about all. That year, my uncle harvested three small pomegranates. I ate one, he ate one, and we kept the other one up in his office. The following year, I was 14. A number of good things had happened to me. I had discovered writing, and I'd grown as tall as my uncle. The pomegranate trees were still our secret. They had cost my uncle a lot of money, but he was always under the impression that very soon he was going to start marketing a big crop and get his money back and go on with his plan to make a garden in the desert. The trees grew a little, but it was hardly noticeable. Quite a few of them withered and died. That's average, my uncle said. Twenty trees to an acre is only average. We won't plant new trees just now. We'll do that later. He was still paying for the land, too. The following year, 
we harvested about 200 pomegranates. We packed them in nice-looking boxes, and my uncle shipped them to a wholesale produce house in Chicago. Eleven boxes. We didn't hear from the wholesale produce house for a month, so one night my uncle made a long-distance phone call. The produce man, D'Agostino, told my uncle nobody wanted pomegranates. How much are you asking per box? My uncle shouted over the phone. One dollar, D'Agostino shouted back. That's not enough, my uncle shouted. I won't take a nickel less than five dollars a box. They don't want them at one dollar a box, D'Agostino shouted. Why not? My uncle shouted. They don't know what they are, D'Agostino shouted. What kind of businessman are you? My uncle shouted. They're pomegranates. I want five dollars a box. I can't sell them, the produce man shouted. I ate one myself, and I don't see anything so wonderful about them. You're crazy, my uncle shouted. There is no other fruit in the world like the pomegranate. Five dollars a box isn't half enough. What shall I do with them, D'Agostino shouted. I can't sell them. I don't want them. I see, my uncle whispered. Ship them back. Ship them back, express collect. So the eleven boxes came back. All winter, my uncle and I ate pomegranates in our spare time. The following year, my uncle couldn't make any more payments on the land. He gave the papers back to the man who had sold him the land. I was in the office at the time. Mr. Griffith, my uncle said, I've got to give you back your property, but I would like to ask a little favor. I've planted twenty acres of pomegranate trees out there on that land, and I'd appreciate it very much if you'd let me take care of those trees. Take care of them, Mr. Griffith said. What in the world for? My uncle tried to explain, but couldn't. It was too much to try to explain to a man who wasn't sympathetic. So my uncle lost the land and the trees, too. A few years later, he and I drove out to the land and walked out to the pomegranate orchard. The trees were all dead. The soil was heavy again with cactus and desert brush. Except for the small dead pomegranate trees, the place was exactly the way it had been all the years of the world. We walked around in the dead orchard for a while, and then went back to the car. We got into the car and drove back to town. We didn't say anything, because there was such an awful lot to say, and no language to say it in. That was Fresno writer Tanya Nichols reading William Soroyan's The Pomegranate Trees, part of Soroyan's collection of short stories, My Name is Aram. You know, Tanya, one of the things, I, I loved your read, well, thank you. One of the things I loved is uh, you became the uncle in the narration. Wow, wow. I, I just, <laughs> I would love to have that sense of pride and, and audacity that he has. What are the feelings you have when you're reading that uncle part? I see him. I feel him in, in every bit of me because I just love him so much. You know, it's like, you walk ahead, just don't step on any rattlesnakes. You know, it's like, it's so great. I just, um, I wish he was my uncle. So Tanya, it's it's often said that 
for the East Coast rider, the first order of business is to reckon with the interior, the interiors of a character's life. And if there's a first order for the Western rider, it's to reckon with the land. That place is a character. Soil, rock, river, stone. Tell us how you deal with place in your most recent novel, Stinger. Stinger is set here in the Central Valley and uh, features a lot of the agriculture experience. And so the challenges of farming this land can't help but be part of the story. And it's not just the challenges of water and the, the dry soil that are a big part of the pomegranate trees, but in the 21st century, there's also the challenge of dealing with developers and large corporations and the value of the land. So in Stinger, it's not just the landscape that is a huge part of the picture and a big part of the story, but it's this land has become so valuable. And I think that's what's so interesting when we read the pomegranate trees, that the man who owns this land that the uncle loves is the least bit interested in the beauty of what the uncle saw. When he imagined this garden and these pomegranate trees, we can see that now. And we can see that in Stinger, the farms and the products and the the nuts and the growth, and then the bees, because this Stinger is all about the bees and the honey, of course, the honey. Yeah. So I, you can't have a book that deals with bees and mad honey and not really feature the land as a character. Tanya Nichols, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, David. And thank you, Mark, for inviting me to um, take part in this wonderful program. It's, it's terrific. You know, that reading was beautiful. Thank you. And thanks to both of you. This has been The Time of Our Life. In case you're wondering about our theme music, it was composed by Fresno native Ross Bagdasarian and his first cousin and lifelong friend, William Saroyan. The melody is based on an Armenian folk song. Special thank you to Tanya Nichols for reading and sharing her insight. Thanks to Mark Rx for his collaboration in this series. Thanks also to Alice Daniel and the entire Valley Public Radio News team. And special thank you to Mimi Calter and the Stanford Libraries for allowing us permission to broadcast these stories. For Valley Public Radio, I'm David Aus. Everything, everything Come out of my house